from West Virginia Public Broadcasting. Support for the legislature today is provided by AARP West Virginia, your ally for real possibilities in the Mountain State. Learn more at aarp.org wv. The Charleston Gazette Mail, using its CGM app to deliver the latest news, traffic, and weather alerts, keeping you in the know while you're on the go. Lumos Networks, online at lumosnetworks.com. West Virginia University, online at wvu.edu. Orion Strategies, professional public relations, government affairs, creative services, and research and polling, with offices in Charleston, Buchanan, Martinsburg, Pittsburgh, and Columbus. Good evening and welcome to the Legislature Today from the Capitol Building in Charleston. I'm Suzanne Higgins. In a session which was dominated by an omnibus education bill which ultimately died, lawmakers now know officially they'll be back for a special session on education. Joining me now, senior reporter Dave Mistich. Uh, Dave, knowing that they will be back uh, to address a salary bill for teachers, that removes a big difference. It, it addresses one of the major differences in their respective budgets. That's right. Uh, the governor is, uh, issued a news release last night saying that it would begin, had become very clear to him that this would not be wrapped up by the end of the session. Uh, in that news release, he called for the improvement of the school aid formula for smaller counties, uh, more nurses, counselors, and psychologists um, in schools as well as the pay raises for teachers and school service personnel. Now today, uh, he did officially issue that proclamation for a special session, and in it, in it uh, and I'll quote, um, he's calling for matters relating generally to improving, modifying, and making efficiencies to the state's public education system and employee compensation. So not super specific as, as to those exact things that he lined out last night. Um, we'll see what comes out of that special session. All right, and right now we've been uh, following, we've been watching bill after bill either pass their house of origin ultimately or go to the, go to the opposite, to go back to their house of origin for passage. This, uh, in the Senate today, Senate Bill 1, a priority, a really f a real focal point in the Senate this, uh, this session. This is the Community and Technical College uh, Bill. Uh, it ultimately passed the, the Senate today, and here are some remarks from a very emotional Senate Finance Chair. There's been a lot of discussion on this bill for two years now. It's an excellent, this is a wonderful day from my perspective. Most of the people in here are college graduates. I am not. But this is going to put us on the path forward for people like myself to succeed in the state of West Virginia and help us succeed. And when I say help us succeed, it's about getting jobs, to businesses to expand and locate here in the state of West Virginia. It's going to help with drug addictions and all the other addictions there is out there. By giving people in an earlier stage of life and even in, in the later stages the opportunity to get their life back 
and have gainful employment, which is, trickles down into their families as well. I can't express the Richard Lindsay of Kanawha County tried to amend an amendment uh, of the chair of the Senate Health and Human Resources Committee. Now, this was to the engrossed committee substitute for House Bill 2010. That's the big foster care reorganization bill. So much of that bill uh, surrounds the $225 million contract with a managed care company. What Lindsay's amendment would do is what opponents of this bill uh, wanted, which was to not go with a managed care uh, company. Let's listen to some of the exchange between those two senators. Yes, my amendment would um, prohibit the transition to managed care for foster families and children um, and instead implement Family First Prevention Services, which was a law that was passed in 2018 by this legislature. Um, in doing so, federal funds would be redirected to establish a working group that would um, uh, determine initiatives for foster kinship and adoptive care and networks throughout the state, support community level planning in all 55 counties, reduce fragmentation of services in an effort to reduce costs, provide a continuum, continuum of care for these uh, children, and ensure that uh, all stakeholders are included in the care and services provided, including foster parents and adoptive parents. We're in the middle of a crisis, a foster care crisis. Uh, it, I'd be very concerned that this would further ignite that crisis. It would make it potentially make things in the crisis worse uh, as we waited to go through the work group of the Family First Act and the other provisions in the amendment provided by the Junior Center from the 8th. Um, I think that um, the, the intentions are good, but I think it could potentially uh, hurt the intent of the bill. And, you know, and the, and the intent of the bill is we're all on the same page. We want to somehow improve this crisis in foster care that we've identified in West Virginia. And there's everyone has a, a slightly different opinion on how we're going to get there. But we have not given, given enough time to see what works and what doesn't. And instead, the only solution that's been provided to this body and the House is to run right into an, a managed care organization, and that will solve everything. Um, I understand that DHHR is overwhelmed and overburdened given the opioid crisis that we all know exists substantially, um, but no solution was provided with regard to, well, maybe the, the reason is we're not putting money in for the, enough social workers, workers and services for these children. Instead, it was MCO or nothing. And for those reasons, Mr. President, I ask for adoption of the My Amendment. Lindsay's amendment failed on a voice vote, and now that bill is on third reading in the Senate. And Dave, I know you were following Senate Bill 4, which was over in the House today on home rule. That's right. And so the bill, generally speaking, would expand the home rule pilot program um, to a permanent program. Uh, there was some language that had been amended into the bill in committee, or actually yesterday, um, that called for um, it would allow citizens to recall uh, uh, local ordinances by way of a referendum vote. And, you know, some delegates in a bipartisan manner offered that amendment to, uh, to strike out that language on the referendum. Um, we'll take a quick listen to uh, Erica Storch, who's closing debate on that amendment, and then take a, listen, a look and a listen to some further debate on the bill in general. The city of Wheeling has participated in the, in the pilot program that started a number of years ago. 
Under that program, we have gone from 77 licenses down to five. I heard the gentleman from the 15th say that you know this would take the um, ability away from the residents of a municipality and give it to the local government, which the people would have the opportunity to put out of office in the next election if they were not satisfied with the direction that they took. I believe the um, language is detrimental to the bonds that may need to be issued if there were water or sewer upgrades or something like that that needs to happen. It's my understanding that they put it out for public comment period. There is a great deal of um, communication between the municipal, municipal elected officials and the people they represent. So for to make this true home rule, we need to adopt this amendment. Thank you. I intended from the beginning to be able to vote for home rule. This is not home rule. This is an aberration of home rule. It takes the, the power of the people away with this, uh, this amendment. It took away the, uh, the uh, uh, ability to recall. So I'll be a no vote on this vote. Garwise, in support of this bill, uh, realize that you are representing the 231 cities across the state that uh, the Municipal League represents. And, and I, I guarantee your municipalities want this. These are the people you represent. And those are the people who represent or govern the, the body, the governing body closest to the people. Keep that in mind that this is power of the people. This is power of the people in their municipalities, especially mine, Barbersville, a very small one. This gives the power to them and not the power to us up here. So please vote in favor of this bill. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. I'm gonna vote in favor of this bill today. Uh, we didn't get all the freedom that I wanted. Uh, we're not getting freedom to the people, but uh, a little bit of freedom to these municipalities would be an improvement. Thank you, sir. Currently, the cities that, that have home rule right now and have a 1% sales tax pursuant to Article 6, Section 39 of, of our Constitution, um, they would end up having to up their user fee. In, in the case of one of my cities, they would probably have to triple it. Now, user fees, a lot of people say, may be taxation without representation because people end up having to work somewhere and then they're not able to, uh, to vote in those elections. So the question is, which is better, a 1% voluntary sales tax, um, which the voters of a city can, can uh, vote a mayor out, vote city council people out, all that, or be forced to pay $15 a week, $20 a week in their user fee? For all those reasons, I would tell you that because this does not contemplate the user fee in the least, we must pass this bill or your people are going to be taxed significantly more in what is considered a fee rather than a tax. And Suzanne, uh, Senate Bill 4 was passed and with those amendments now heads back to the Senate for concurrence. All right. Anything else in the House today? Sure. Uh, the, the Medicaid fraud uh, uh, program, um, detection program the, that was once in DHHR. Um, the House uh, voted on that bill, passed it after a lengthy debate. debate. Um, that, that unit, uh, I should say, uh, goes from DHHR to the Attorney General's office. Um, 25 some at-will positions will be moved uh, between those two agencies. Okay, and uh, as, as we wrap up here, uh, both the House and Senate are, are scheduled in this evening, again pushing toward an agreement on a budget bill. That's right. So the House will be in this evening. Uh, I've heard that uh, the Majority Leader Amy Summers wants to take a look at the budget. Um, of course, the Senate amended their version of the budget into the House bill. Um, so they'll take that up. There's a couple other bills this evening that are on um, second reading 
and we'll see where that goes, but racing towards Saturday nonetheless. All right, thank you so much, Dave. Thank you. Today was Recovery Awareness Day here at the Capitol. West Virginia's substance use disorder treatment and rehab groups gathered here for educational purposes. Randy Yoe looked into what's working best in addiction services and what can be done when it all seems hopeless. I was homeless, hopeless, and um, suicidal. I put my family through a lot of difficult situations. I was homeless, couldn't keep a job. Uh, at one point I was on the street homeless. Um, I just could not seem to uh, stay clean no matter what. You can't even possibly imagine actually if you haven't been in active addiction and it's not something that I would wish on anybody if they haven't been there. Joanna, Ron and Megan were among the majority representing Mountain State Addiction Help Groups. All three are now clean and sober, working as recovery coaches. All three agree that every addict must find the pathway to sobriety that works for them. But all agree that in following every pathway, support may be the most vital element to recovery. Because the biggest thing about addiction is isolation. Like, you hate yourself, you don't want to be around anybody, like, you don't you don't want to be around yourself and that's why you use that escape to get away so that you don't have to feel those and that's what is the hardest part about coming back from addiction is facing those realities and those hardships that you had numbed for so long. If you haven't been in that situation before it's hard to understand and people like like for instance going to a doctor that's never been there they can't relate with us so that's what helps the most. Bridge Valley Community and Technical College takes the peer counseling approach an educational step further, offering an associate degree in addiction counseling and youth development. Approximately 80% of our students have lived experience, meaning that they've either experienced addiction, mental health conditions, or co-occurring, having a mental health condition and an addiction at the same time, um, or have had loved ones, friends and family members, and it's led them to pique their interest and want to know more and learn how to help. Still, addiction rages on, so I asked these experts what constitutes rock bottom. Contrary to popular belief, I don't believe in rock bottom. Why? Because I know many people that's hit rock bottom and then found a basement underneath it, and then found a dungeon underneath that, and then just kept on digging from there. Many families in West Virginia have a loved one that doesn't seem to have a rock bottom. For decades, they've had mental health issues coupled with that addiction, and the only thing that's ever got them in any treatment is involuntary, and then that doesn't stick. What does that family do? For the family, is their own Al-Anon or Naranon, or you know, some kind of support system for them. Um, because there's nothing you can do for that person until that person wants help. I had mental health issues. I needed counseling. I needed, uh, I took medication for a while. Um, I think it just requires a, a group of people working together to try to help people get through this thing. And mental illness and addiction have been stigmatized for so long that people don't want to come out and receive the help that they need because then I'm an addict or then I'm crazy or insane. Um, and so we try to reduce those barriers by eliminating the stigma attached to it. Where to begin? The statewide website helpforwv.com offers 24-7 counseling, referrals, placement, and the all-important follow-up help for both addicts and loved ones. They will stick with you. For the legislature today, I'm Randy Yowie.
twice this week, Senator John Unger of Berkeley County has accused Senate letter, le leadership of launching a war on public education, including higher education. He was referring to the Senate's strike and insert amendment to House Bill 2020, the budget bill, which did not include 15 million in funding enhancements for higher education that were originally included in the House budget. The Senate sent the, the amended bill yesterday back to the House where funding for higher education could still change before lawmakers reach a budget agreement. Joining us now are Dr. Kendra Bogas, president of Concord University, and Dr. Murda Martin, president of Fairmont State University. Thank you both for being here tonight. Uh, those enhancements as were defined in the House budget would have been uh, 1.6 million for Concord and three uh, million for Fairmont. Uh, let, let's first begin. Do you agree with the Senator? Do you feel higher education has been under assault in the last so many years? Uh, Dr. Bogus. Well, <clears throat> our budgets have been cut almost 20%, a little bit over 20% in the last five years. Significant. Um, significant. I mean, any business that takes a 20% cut, that's, that's a tremendous strain. And um, I think we hear a lot that we're not, we're not um, shallow enough, we're not, we're not deep enough in terms of cuts. We've cut to the point that now we're looking at programs and our ability to serve and have access to students. It's, it's pretty severe, I think. So in a time when there are budget surpluses, it seems an appropriate time for a reinvestment in higher ed. And we've been very concerned that wouldn't happen. It looks like it might. And we're very, very thankful that that's being looked at again. Uh, Dr. Martin, um, you know we've we, we've heard it been termed the one of the low-hanging fruits when there's when, when there needs to be cuts or something needs some money. Uh, it, it's often higher education or Medicaid. Um, how has it affected uh, Fairmont State? Well, it has affected Fairmont State significantly. You know, at the end of the day, Fairmont State University educates the most West Virginians in the state. 88.8 percent .8 of our population comes from West Virginia, and it is our mission, as it is the mission of many of our colleagues throughout the state, to be able to provide an affordable and accessible, superb education to our students. As higher education, as you just heard from Dr. Bogus, in the last five years, at a time when over 40 states in the nation have chosen to invest in higher education. Regrettably, West Virginia in the last five years has chosen to cut higher education to the tune of 20.6%. Those cuts are regrettably passed along to those who can afford it the least, our students. Mm -hmm. And we have to begin to put our students first. You know, you and I and Dr. Bogus and everybody else is here today because they had access to an education, because somebody thought of them and put them first. The reason that we're here is because we are fighting for the next generation of leaders. It is my privilege to be part of Fairmont State University so that I can be the voice who, for those who do not have one, so that I can open a door for those who do not have one and who deserve to have a right to, through education, have access to their American dream. Most importantly, though, we need to retain our talent in our state. We continue to export talent for West Virginia to rise to its potential, and there's great potential in this state. Its people have grit, have resilience, have a work ethic that's second to none. We need to create pathways through education 
for our children, and an investment in higher education yields transformational returns. Dr. Bogus, let me ask you, um, do, do you feel that higher education has somehow fallen out of favor? Uh, the governor did not mention uh, higher education in his state of the state. He did not implement the recommendation of the Blue Ribbon Commission, uh, a, a $10 million focused mostly on those uh, bringing up some of the, the smaller schools, addressing some of those needs immediately. Those are big omissions. They are big omissions, and it's troubling um, that we've not had conversations with, with some of the people who have seen it, it fairly easily uh, to cut us. So um, I'm not sure, I understand the need for all kinds of education, not just four-year degrees. So. Um, enhancing the ability of students to get two-year degrees, to bring people into the system who normally weren't there, I'm in favor of that for sure. But we all know that if you want to go further, you need a four-year degree today. You, you probably need a graduate degree. The, the, uh, the requirements to be very successful in our society are much higher than they once were. Being computer literate, understanding all of the changes, those are incredibly important along with English and math. And I mean, I just think we're, we're, not, um, we're not paying attention to the foundational elements of an education that really bring people up. Before I ask Dr. Martin about the, uh, the, the funding formula, sure. let, uh, just express real quickly how, how difficult it must be to operate if you don't have, a, a, you don't know what you're getting year to year. There is no funding formula, so very briefly. It's, well, it's very difficult, um, and I think all of us are at a point where we have many, um, many issues with our buildings, with we have a boiler that we always laugh at says, you know, I like Ike on it. They're, they're old. And if one of those goes down, it's a million dollars. We don't have a million dollars. Our, you know, our, our surpluses are just gone from the cuts year after year after year. So it's been, it's been difficult. And it must be harder uh, for a smaller school to absorb those uh, kinds of difficulties. There must be some, um, you know, means to insulate uh, the much larger universities. I, I, I need to, to get to the funding formula, the Blue Ribbon Commission, and you both are members of the, Blue, uh, the Governor's Blue Ribbon Commission on Higher Education. There's, there's no recommendation. There was supposed to be a recommendation for a funding formula in, well, two months ago. Right. There still isn't one. Okay. Why can't we get to that? Well, there, there, there's two reasons. First of all, um, to devise a true funding formula, a performance-based funding formula that incentivizes universities and colleges to be able to meet the needs of the state. It takes more than a couple of months. I was, in a previous life, I was part of such a commission. It took us a year um, because we need to understand this, the unique attributes of each of the institutions and be able to accommodate for that. So what we did is we created a, an interim step, which we called the recalibration formula. And the recalibration formula was designed to take $10 million of new money and be able to, um, to um, uh, bring each of the institution, uh, omit the disparity that currently exists by bringing everybody to parity. So right now, the in-state funding for West Virginians, it's different in every institution, from about $4,900 all the way up to $6,900. So by bringing in $10 million to recalibrate you're taking West Virginians taxpayers' money and investing it 
in the next generation of leaders of West Virginians. So it brings to parity the disparity that has occurred over the years. And what we thought was that this would be an interim model and all of the institutions agreed on it, including WVU and Marshall, with the exception of one. So it was almost a unanimous vote. So in, in bringing parity to the disparity, then the next suggestion, and this was submitted to the governor, the suggestion was also to allow the Finance Committee to stay together of the Blue Ribbon Commission to be able to, through research, come up with a true performance-based funding formula that would be agreeable to all, that would take the unique attributes of all of the institutions from the flagships to the very little institutions and be able to then, as legislators were able to fund year after year, there would be a model. It was not a matter of I like this or I like that, accepted, but it's a model. Accepted, not accepted, you'll have to wrap it up. That's right. Accepted. And what happened? It, wasn't. Uh, it, it was not used. The recalibration, the recalibration model was not used. It was accepted almost unanimously by the Blue Ribbon right. Commission, but it was not used. But, you know, we are hoping that the legislators will still fund at least some of higher education because an investment in it will yield tremendous results. All right. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. We really appreciate it. Dr. Kendra Bogus. President of Concord University, and Dr. Murder Martin, President of Fairmont State University. Thank, Thank you, you both Thank so you. much Thank for you. being here. I'm Suzanne Higgins. For everyone here at West Virginia Public Broadcasting, thanks for joining us. Have a great evening.